Hey guys, this is my so-called true crime podcast, and I'm Brandy. This is the podcast that I've created to share with you guys my obsession of true crime. Um, For those of you who are new, welcome, and thank you for joining me tonight. And to those of you who tune in every week, welcome back. Thank you so much for your support. So, a few weeks ago, I told you guys that I had an episode full of heist plan. And I still plan on doing that. Um, However, while I was doing my research and putting together my script, um, I found out that I wasn't actually researching heists. In fact, this whole week during my research, I finally figured out that I'll actually be covering the theft of art and historical items. Um, This is actually referred to as cultural property crimes. So tonight I have a few um, cases lined up for you. Um, I do plan on doing another episode. I'm splitting it up into two parts so that um, I can kind of finish up the rough edges of my script and get it ready for you guys. However, you're not going to have to wait a whole week for it to come out. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. like I mentioned before, I'm going to talk to you guys about art and cultural property crimes. According to FBI.gov, this includes theft, fraud, looting, and trafficking across state and international lines. In 2004, the FBI established a rapid deployment art crime team. This team is composed of 20 special agents, each responsible for addressing art and cultural property crime cases in an assigned geographic region. Art crime team agents receive specialized training in art and cultural property investigations 
and they assist in art-related investigations worldwide in cooperation with foreign law enforcement officials and FBI legal attache offices. The U.S. Department of Justice provides special trial attorneys to the art crime team for prosecutive support. Since its inception, the art crime team has recovered more than 15,000 items valued over $800 million. So I have a few cases lined up for you guys, and I have to tell you, just like Stanley Rifkin, I had a little bit of fun with this case. Again, I think it's because nobody actually died. So let's start off with the first one. While I was researching and writing the script for this episode, I was completely under the impression that I was covering heists. Um, there's really not all that much different between the two, but I want to let you guys know that the correct terminology is cultural property crime. Um, but I didn't think to change my script while I... Um, after I found this out, so if I mention a heist or something like that, let's just chalk it up to me not knowing something, okay? Because um, I don't want to have to go back through and change all the words. I'm trying to get this out for you guys on time, and um, I'm also trying to start a Patreon, so The first case I have for you is the Tucker's Cross. This one is more about a treasure hunt than a heist, but a theft did occur. Plus, who doesn't love a good treasure hunt? <clears throat> so the Tucker's Cross is a seven emerald studded 22 karat gold cross. On each of the arms and at the base of the cross were rings which hung tiny gold nails. These nails represented the nails of the crucifixion. This artifact was found in Bermuda. Uh, Bermuda is a collection of 181 smaller islands, with the largest island being known as the Main Island. Main Island had a population of approximately 7,100. It was the most populated of all the British overseas territories, and it's mostly self-governed. Bermuda was discovered in 1505, and it was named after the Spanish explorer Juan de Bermudez. The island had no indigenous population, and it seems to have been used as a replenishment spot for fresh meat and water for Portuguese and Spanish ships. According to a lot of sailors, the islands were being haunted by devils and spirits, they could hear shrieks and cries coming from the islands. So because of this and the dangerous reefs and so because of this and the dangerous reefs and treacherous seas, the place became known as the Isle of Devils. These islands remained unsettled by either Portuguese or Spain. In 1609, King James I was part of a small contingent to settle in the New World. 
His ship was actually part of the flotilla en route to Jamestown. But bad weather tore apart the group, and the ship, Sea Venture, sailed into the Bermuda Reef. 150 passengers, including a dog, made it to land using smaller boats. They stayed about 10 months, building a settlement and claiming the land for the English crown. Interesting little tidbit. One of these settlers was John Rolfe, husband of Pocahontas. His first wife, Sarah, and their daughter, Bermuda, was buried here. The reefs surrounding Bermuda are incredibly dangerous, and they are often described as a graveyard. Countless boats and ships throughout the centuries have been damaged here and litter the ocean floor. So it's really not surprising that there might be treasures sitting at the bottom of the ocean lost to the world. Teddy Tucker was born in Bermuda in 1925. He loved the ocean and he had a deep connection with it. He started diving for a local aquarium at the young age of 12, and when he turned 16, he joined the Navy. Higher-ups in the Navy became impressed with Teddy when they saw his skill and confidence on the water. Soon, he was put forward for specialist training in underwater sabotage and explosives. At the end of World War II, Tucker returned to Bermuda he started an underwater salvage and construction business in the early 1950s. Tucker struggled with his salvage business in the beginning. He was poorly paid and he lived off cheap fish and turnips. However, his luck changed when his business was recruited by the government of Bermuda to salvage non-ferrous metals from wrecks in order to aid in the reparation of the island's war debt. Over the course of a summer, they would make enough money to pay for his other interests, scouring the reefs to look for old shipwrecks. Old wrecks are often on the reefs surrounding Bermuda. Old wrecks are often sighted on the reefs surrounding Bermuda. Pieces of these ships were found by fishermen in the surrounding waters, but no one really put in any effort to investigate the wreckages. Tucker had read plenty of texts detailing the paths taken by the Spanish and Portuguese fleets in the past, and he knew they would often stop by Bermuda. But Tucker was ready, as he put it, to go look for treasure, and he bought himself a boat to do just that. Searching for shipwrecks in the 1950s is pretty different from how we do it today. Back in the day, the most common way was to use a magnetometer behind the boat. However, in the reefs surrounding Bermuda, there are so many magnetic anomalies. So this method was useless to Tucker and his crew. And for the same reason, using sonar was out. The coral was too high and it interfered with the reading. So the visual method was his only viable option. Teddy and his wife, Edna, went searching for wrecks every day. Of course, this was only when the weather was suitable. The couple developed their own method of visually searching the reefs. This method was called towing. It consisted of two divers being pulled underwater behind the boat. 
dropping markers they would come back to later for further examination. This was a very rudimentary method, but it seemed to work. Divers became more and more adept at looking for artifacts. They also used this method to inspect coral damage and odd reef formations. Unfortunately, this method was incredibly dangerous. It would attract local sharks who sometimes followed the divers. Another method used was visual from the air, but this wasn't as effective because the seaplane caused disturbances on the surface of the water. However, the vantage point the seaplane gave Teddy was very beneficial. So, soon afterwards, he ordered a helium balloon and this became an effective way to search for wrecks. Throughout his life, Tucker befriended many fishermen. It was one of these fishermen who told him about a pair of large marble columns embedded in the outer reefs. Together, Tucker and this fisherman went to have a closer look. When they found the columns, Tucker noticed what appeared to be the muzzle of a small cannon sticking out of a sand pocket. Upon closer examination, he saw that it was a small cannon. The pair left, and for whatever reason, they, they didn't return to this site for another four years. In September of 1955, Tucker finally traveled back to the reef for a closer look. At the time, there were no formal instructions or even rough guidelines on how to exav excavate an underwater wreck. There had only been one person, Art McKee, to have found a treasure ship, and that was sometime in the 1930s. So, Tucker started fanning the sand, and a short time later, he started to see wood and porcelain slowly coming through the haze that he created. Then he saw what he thought might be coins and a five-sided cube. Tucker and his team became dedicated to uncovering the wreckage, but the weather was restrictive. Over six separate visits to the site, they uncovered more and more treasures gold and pearl buttons, gold ingots, a gold bar weighing 36 ounces, and of course, the aforementioned coins. Their return for a seventh day, which happened to be a Sunday, saw their most exciting find yet. His find was an emerald studded cross made out of 22 karat gold. The design was simple and crude, and Tucker didn't believe that it was made by Spanish artisans. Later examination showed that the piece was of Indian origin. The ornate gold edges surrounded seven emeralds, and each emerald was practically the size of a musket ball. On the arms of each side hung small nails representing the nails used for the crucifixion of Christ. There is a small ring at the bottom of the cross, probably for another nail, but this nail was never found. The item is more than just a piece of jewelry, however, 
the flat engraved back of the cross can be removed, allowing for the containment of a sacred relic. So where did it come from? Spanish coins found in the wreckage were dated no later than, than 1592, and other gold items also showed evidence of Spanish providence in the form of the Royal Spanish Tax Stamp. Tucker believed the ship was the San Pedro, lost in 1594. However, this was a popular name for Spanish ships, and other historians also suggest that it may be a different ship with the same name. Further examination of the routes taken by these ships suggests that there is actually one San Pedro that could be the one discovered by Tucker. This San Pedro was captained by Pedro Nunez de Bajorquez. The Nunez San Pedro was under the protection of an armada when it left Spain in 1594 to Portobello, Panama. Following a stop planned in Cartagena, Colombia for precious cargo, the Armada started their return journey. A route around Havana and onward to Azores and the Atlantic. While the exact cause of the disaster is unknown, it is possible that the ship was taken slightly off course, resulting in its wreck on the Bermudan Reef. And because the San Pedro was slightly ahead of the Armada, there were no witnesses to the tragedy. Tucker reported his find to the Bermudan government, and this started a tug-of-war match over the treasure. The government tried to declare that the item was property of the British Crown estate, but Tucker scoffed at this. He said if that were true, then he was just going to take it back to the reef so the government could find it themselves. So eventually the government agreed to negotiate instead. This is where we meet the U.S. ambassador to Italy, Claire Booth Luce. She's a conservative Roman Catholic convert and was extremely eager to purchase the cross from Tucker, but he refused. Her initial offer was $100,000. Then that became $200,000. And then it became a name your price offer. But Tucker still refused. He didn't care about the money. He insisted that whatever happened, the cross had to stay in Bermuda. Even He even referred to it as Bermuda's crown jewels. In 1959, Tucker finally decided to sell the cross to the Bermudan government, and he received $35,000 for the treasure hall, which included the cross. The cross alone had been estimated at $250,000, but Tucker managed to get the government to agree that Tucker's treasure, as it was now being called, would be put on display at the local aquarium. Okay, so fast forward. It's now 1975, and during that time, and during the time that had passed, Tucker and his wife had started a maritime museum on the island, and by 1975, they sold it, and the Bermuda's crown jewels had been moved to a temporary display. This is where, on the day that Queen Elizabeth was to visit, 
Teddy Tucker looked over the treasures he had found from the San Pedro and another wreck, the San Antonio, while he waited for the royal entourage to arrive. His daughter Wendy watched the blood drain from her father's face as he looked at the cross. He reached out to touch it and found it was covered in gold paint and was still tacky to the touch. His most precious treasure discovery was gone and had been replaced with a cheap plastic replica. And in a state of panic, Tucker removed the fake cross from the display and the treasure was quickly reorganized to hide the obviously missing piece. He plastered on a smile and welcomed the royal party, discussing his finds enthusiastically, but internally he was reeling. Investigations begun immediately. The fact that the paint was still tacky meant the switch had happened recently, probably within the last couple of days during the transit of the treasure from the aquarium to the museum. Police discovered that the key to the safe used for the transportation was kept in an unlocked cabinet and several people had handled the cross during the process. A few people were questioned, but there were no leads. An inside job was suspected because the possibility of the thief using the unguarded key. An inside job was suspected due to the possibility of the key of the thief using the unguarded key. International art thief was another popular theory based on the fact the perpetrator had gone through the trouble of making a copy. Investigations were carried out by the Bermuda Police, the FBI, Scotland Yard, and Interpol, but no sign of the cross was ever seen again. Teddy Tucker passed away in 2014 at 89 years old, so he will never know what happened to his most precious discovery. After everything he gave up to keep it in Bermuda, one can only hope that it really hasn't gone far, but I know that's naive. Chances are is that it's sitting in a private collection somewhere, no longer buried in the sand, but equally as hidden. Now, I know this story wasn't as heisty as some of you might have liked. However, I am a fan of old shipwrecks and sunken treasure. I wish I was the kind of person who liked to go diving and treasure hunting. But I'm not, so I just read about the people who are. You know, maybe try to live a little vicariously through them. So don't worry guys, I told you I had a couple stories lined up for you. Um, so we're going to keep this train moving and jump right into the next story. Art thefts are often crimes that pique the public's interest because of the high prices associated with the works. While several masterpieces have been targeted and stolen over the years, most notably Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, one painting holds the distinction of having been stolen twice. Tonight I'm going to explore the thefts of Edward Munch's The Scream. Norwegian painter and printmaker Edward Munch wrote in his diary in 1892, One evening I was walking along a path. The city was on one side and the fjord below. I felt tired and ill. I stopped and looked out over the fjord. The sun was setting and the clouds turning blood red. I sensed a scream passing through nature. It seemed to me that I heard the scream. I painted this picture, painted the clouds as actual blood. 
The color shrieked. This became the scream. Over a hundred years later, and Munch's revelation that many believed stems from the death of his mother and elder sister remains one of the most noteworthy and important works in modern history. Considered to be one of the most recognizable paintings in the world, Munch actually created four different versions in his career. Two paintings housed at the National Gallery in Oslo and the Munch Gallery, and two pastel versions. One of the pastels hold the distinction of being the second highest nominal price paid for a painting at auction when Leon Black purchased it for $119 million in 2012. So it should come as little surprise then that thieves have attempted and successfully stolen it before. What is unique about the scream is that it became the target for not only one, but two daring thefts. Paul Anger was an ex-professional soccer player who played for low-level and low-wage-driven Norwegian club Bellaringa. And he had been incarcerated for stealing Munch's The Vampire in 1988 by climbing into the Munch Museum through an open window. As the Guardian noted, two of Anger's teammates were policemen who noticed that, despite not having a second job, he threw away brand new tracksuits at the end of each training session, claiming it wasn't worth washing them. Intrigued, they followed Anger through Oslo and watched as he spent large sums on watches, clothes, restaurants, and holidays. They soon discovered that he was a thief, mainly stealing jewels and cash. When police raided his home, the vampire was found hanging on the wall. After being released from prison in 1994, after serving three years of a six-year sentence, Anger was commissioned to steal the scream from the National Gallery. On the opening day of the 1994 Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway, with festivities taking most, if not all, the attention of the police, Anger and three accomplices needed only 50 seconds to break into the National Gallery in Oslo. Not satisfied with merely getting away with Munch's masterpiece, the thieves left a note on the wall in place of the painting which read, Thousand thanks for the bad security. In subsequent weeks, Anger took out a birth announcement in the newspaper which read, quote, Med et Skrik, which translates to, with a scream. As The Guardian reported, police hired a British art recovery expert, Tony Russell, who helped put together a sting when Anger tried to ransom the painting for 700,000 pounds. He was captured during the handover in a small town near Oslo, and the painting was recovered undamaged. He was sentenced to six and a half years, but he escaped from prison while on a field trip in 1999. But he was captured 12 days later in a blonde wig and dark sunglasses trying to buy a train ticket to Copenhagen. On August 22, 2004, the scream would once again be a target. Although this time, it was a different version, but just as brazen, 
According to Time, armed men walked into the museum and carted off Munch's archetypal image of contemporary anxiety along with a ghostly masterwork, Madonna. They knew exactly where the paintings were, and they took them down from the wall, said Joran Christofferson, who was the head of information for the Munch Museum. After threatening staff and museum goers with a 357 Magnum pistol, they disappeared. Most assumed it was another attempt to try and sell one of Munch's works on the black market. But two hours later, less than a mile away, the police found shattered wooden frames and glass from the stolen works, a discovery that caused ex art experts to fear that the two treasures might already have been damaged. It was the last time any pieces of the screen would be seen in public for over two years. Interestingly, prior to the 2004 Scream heist, there was another brazen robbery in Oslo that had captured nearly the entire police force's attention after thieves successfully entered Norsk Content Service, or NOKAS, a cash transport service in the basement of Norway's central bank. As the Guardian reported, at about 8 a.m. on April 5, 2004, a man drove a large white van in front of the police station in Norway's cathedral city of Stavanger. Another man got out of the cab, walked to the main door holding a canister of tear gas, pulled the pin, and threw it inside. The two men drove off in a passenger car, the van bursting into flames as they fled. At that same moment, the police started receiving calls of a robbery in progress at the offices of Norsk. At that same moment, the police started receiving calls of a robbery in progress at the offices of Nokas. Five men wearing black overalls, gas masks, and helmets had entered the building carrying bags stuffed full of equipment. Another three, armed with automatic weapons, had taken up strategic positions at the junction of two nearby streets. In the aftermath of the robbery, the thieves made off with $5 million in untraceable cash, leaving behind one dead police officer who had traded fire with the robbers. Following the theft of the scream, investigators began to wonder if the taking of the painting itself was a smokescreen to alleviate the spotlight that the robbers were facing after only the seventh police officer death in post-war Norway. Investigators focused their attention on David Tosca, a career criminal, believing he was not only the mastermind behind the no-cost robbery but also the one responsible for hiring and executing the subsequent theft of the screen. Tosca was eventually arrested in Malaga and charged with the Nokas robbery, but prosecutors couldn't make a definitive link between the cases. On August 31, 2006, police announced the recovery of the screen, but provided little details as to how they got it back. For two years and nine days, They've been hunting systematically for these pictures, and now they've found them. Ivor Stearns read, For two years and nine days, we have been hunting systematically for these pictures, and now we've found them. Ivor Stearns who headed the police investigation, said at a news conference in Oslo, quote, It is a happy day for us in the police, for the owners of the paintings, and not least for the public which will soon be able to once again admire the paintings.
don't get me wrong. I think those paintings are, you know, gorgeous, and I love looking at them, but I don't see the fascination with stealing art. I mean, why isn't it enough for them to be in the museum for all to look at? Why do museums even have to be worried? And why also are these works of art, like, insured and and going for so much money? I mean, I don't want to discount anybody's talent here by any means, but why is it worth that much money? Is that because the person who painted them is dead? I don't know. I just don't see the point of selling or stealing art. I get that there's a black market. I understand that, but I don't understand why there's a black market. Maybe, I don't know, maybe I'm uncultured swine, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, I have one more uh, tale for you tonight before I get out of here. So let's keep moving right along. In 1632, Rembrandt painted a portrait of Jacob de Gain III, an engraver living in Utrecht. The portrait is quite small, measuring approximately 12 by 10 inches, and as a result, it's relatively easy to steal. This portrait of the Dutch engraver is a part of a pair. The other piece is a portrait of his friend, and it's hanging in the Kunsthal Hamburg. The painting is, like I said, much smaller than most of his works. Um, it's the factor that has contributed to the numerous thefts of the work. The painting had been given the title Takeaway Rembrandt, as it had been stolen four times since 1966, the most recorded of any painting. The picture, which hangs in the Dulwich Picture Gallery in London, was stolen for the first time in 1966. Shortly after midnight on December 31, 1966, thieves, employing a drill and a brace to knock out a panel from a seldom-used oak door, broke into the Dulwich Picture Gallery in South London. They stole Rembrandt's painting of Jacob de Gain III, two other Rembrandts, and works by Peter Paul Rubens, Gerard Doe, and Adam Elsheimer. The Rembrandts were discovered shortly afterwards under a bush near the rookery by a man walking his dog on Streetham Common. The rest of the hall was recovered within two weeks in a nearby cemetery, but no one was charged for this theft. The second time it was stolen was in 1973. The thief did not enter the gallery at night like his predecessors, but he simply walked into the gallery and put the painting under his sweatshirt. He then walked out of the museum and mounted his bike. He was found quickly cycling around the South Circular with the painting in the basket of his bike. The 24-year-old thief boldly declared that the painting reminded him of his mother when asked why he had stolen it. In late 1891, Portrait of Jacob was stolen for the third time. Again, the thieves entered the gallery during the day, 
One of the two thieves distracted the guard, and the other took the painting from the wall. The crime was only discovered some weeks later when police found the painting in a taxi with four men. The gallery could not afford expensive security measures, but after the painting was retrieved, the museum decided to invest $20,000 in its security. However, this didn't seem to help because a dramatic theft occurred in 1983. The thieves entered the gallery through a smashed skylight and shimmied down a rope, a la Mission Impossible style. The alarm went off and police arrived within three minutes, but the thieves had already gone with the picture. The painting was missing for three years, eventually being found on October 8, 1986, in a luggage rack at the train station of a British Army garrison in Munster, Germany. The other two times, the painting was found underneath a bench in a graveyard in Streetham, on the back of a bicycle. Each time, the painting had been returned anonymously, with nobody ever facing charges for its disappearance. After it was found in Germany, the Rembrandt was taken back to the gallery for the fourth time, where it remains to this day. How the painting was taken away and recovered is one of the many fascinating true crime tales in Stealing Rembrandts, The Untold Stories of Notorious Art Heist by Anthony M. Amore and Tom Mashberg. Amore has been security director since 2005 of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, where 13 works, including two Rembrandt paintings and an etching, were stolen were stolen in 1990 in the greatest unsolved art theft in history. Mashberg is an award-winning investigative reporter and the Sunday editor of the Boston Herald. Amor and Mashberg have explored all the known thefts of Rembrandt paintings, drawings, and etchings during the last century. The total number of thefts is 81, although the authors point out that the list is incomplete because thefts are not always made public. The figure also does not include Rembrandt stolen by the Nazis during World War II. Even Rembrandt's former house in Amsterdam, where he lived between 1639 and 1658, had been burglarized twice. Stealing Rembrandt's is filled with memorable characters. There's James L. Hugh, a bit of an operator, but not a career criminal. He owned the Cincinnati bar called the Speakeasy Nightclub and was also known among retired police officers as a con artist who drove around his neighborhood with a pet lion in his convertible. Then there is Miles J. Connor Jr., whose father was a decorated police sergeant. He staged a theft of a Rembrandt from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston on the morning jurors were being picked for his trial on another burglary charge. Connor robbed at least a dozen museums in New England in the 1960s and 70s and spent as many years in the federal prisons. Well, guys, I'm going to stop here tonight. I've been rambling long enough. I do have a few more for you guys, and you won't have to wait a week to hear about it. Also, um, good news is I've started a Patreon. There's only one tier right now. Um, I wanted to offer you guys the opportunity to get all your episodes a day early and ad-free. So go check it out. 
Also, you know, of course, I would love to hear from you guys. So leave me a review or come find me at Facebook at My So-Called True Crime Podcast, on Twitter at My So-Called Crime Pod, I'm on Instagram at My True Crime Pod, and um, you can email me at My So-Called True Crime Pod at gmail.com. But whatever you do, just be safe out there. And I hope to catch you next time. Good night.